Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want a Spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. Hello again and welcome to the very last podcast for 2019. Can you believe it? The very last podcast for the entire decade. That just blows my mind. I can't believe how quickly this year has gone and how frantically busy it has been. And I hope everybody is looking forward to putting their feet up for a little while and enjoying a bit of a vacay in the next few weeks. I'm so pumped to bring this very last episode to everybody and I have an awesome interview to uh, share with you. But just before we get started, I have some pretty cool and exciting stuff to share with you. And first of all, I would love to announce and encourage everybody to send in their nominations for the 2019 Crappy Awards. As you know, at the end of every year, I do the crappies, which is basically voting and asking people to send in their vote for what they think is the crappiest, shittiest, most absolutely irritating aspect of diet culture that they encountered this year. And I know it's stiff competition because there's just bullshit left, right, centre coming at us from all angles in all different disguises because diet culture is is a shapeshifter, isn't it? It's just totally disguising itself and reinventing itself and wrapping itself in glitter and chucking it at us all the time. Uh, But now's your chance. If something has really pissed you off, shut you up the wall, I really want to hear about it. Send me a three or so minute long rant. Give me your absolute best shot at, at venting about this thing that's really pissed you off. It might be something to do with a diet product that you've heard about, a silly a silly lifestyle change or a ridiculous cleanse, something totally expensive and aimed at ripping off a vulnerable population. It might be a bit of research. It might be something to do with the media. There's just, you know, no end of things to pick from that might have shut you to tears. So give me a rant and send me that to louise at untrapped.com.au and I'm going to collect all of the rants that, that I get sent and play them all for you in our 2020 January episode. Uh, and we're going to get from that a winner and guess what? There is a prize and it's fantastic. So please send me your rants. As you might know, if you listen regularly to this podcast, it is brought to you thanks to Untrapped, which is the wonderful online program that I co-created alongside 11 other incredible anti-diet health professionals. And Untrapped's been running for a couple of years. We have a beautiful online community. We go on retreats and our retreat is coming up in March 2020, which is coming close. Uh, It's just an incredible program for helping you to unlearn all of the diet culture crap and getting a lot of support along the way, both from the guides in Untrapped and from the online community. Anyway, super exciting news. Untrapped is on sale in a big way because I really want to help everybody navigate the next decade, 2020 onwards. 
liberated from diet culture, uh, really confident and in pushing back and able to kind of tap into the wonderful skills like intuitive eating, moving for joy and enjoyment instead of moving in a way that is always attached to weight change or shape change. And most of all, Untrapped is about coming home to your body. Untrapped is about um, relearning that connection that we get detached from thanks to all of these damaging messages from diet culture. So Untrapped is a beautiful program. It's It runs for three months and the special announcement is not only is it on sale, so normally Untrapped sells for in Aussie dollars, $570, and it's way down at the moment. It's on special. It's only $400. And one of the reasons I'm doing this, is, as I said, I really want to um, help everyone start next year, just not trapped anymore. But also I'm running a bit of a deal. So Normally with Untrapped, I do like a live Q&A. So once a month for an hour, we all meet um, usually on a Saturday and we talk about how everyone's going in general terms. But starting from mid-January, I'm running weekly Q&As. So every single Saturday, I'm going to be there for an hour talking people through the material. So we're going to start at week one in mid-Jan and we're going to go every Saturday all the way through till almost the end of March where we're covering all, all of the material in the whole program. So it's, it's like, a, I guess, a masterclass intensive in all of the untrapped information. And it's really like more heavily guided by me. Like I said, usually it's monthly. This time it's going to be weekly and it's really going to run through all of the material. There's lots of people in the community already who are gearing up to redo the information because that's kind of how this rolls, isn't it? When, when you do introduce yourself to the anti-diet world and the haze world, it can often take a few goes at learning about it and putting stuff into practice and then returning to concepts and deepening your understanding. So I'm really excited about the intensive and I'm extremely excited to um, hopefully invite new people in at this special price and run it through in an intensive way. So if this sounds like something you're interested in, please sign up now because I want to make sure we get the group together before we start in mid-Jan. And in order to get this special price of 400 Aussie dollars, when you register, you put in the code, which is 2020 sale. I know it's really complicated, isn't it? So enter the code 2020 sale at the register and you'll get the special price that will just pop up automatically. And you'll be in and you'll be part of our community and gearing up for this amazing intensive. So please, if you've ever thought of joining, now is really the time. And now on to this week's show. I'm so excited to be ending the year with such a wonderful guest. Her name, you might know her, Christy Harrison. And she is an intuitive eating coach, an anti-diet dietitian, and host of the Food Psych podcast, which I'm sure you've heard because it's bloody awesome. Uh, Christy does so much in this space and she talks to so many people on her podcast. She also runs online courses and she offers online intuitive eating coaching as well. So she's super busy. She's also often in the media talking up the, the haze and anti-diet stuff and really pushing back against diet culture. So she does a lot of advocacy in this space. And really exciting news because we can now add 
Christy as an author to her list of achievements. Yes, that's right. She's just written the book and it's coming out around Christmas time. So I thought this would be just the perfect time to interview her and see what's really getting up her nose about diet culture. And this is a really awesome conversation and a wonderful way to wrap up this year. And I do feel like I'm giving everybody a lovely Christmas present by giving you this conversation. So without further ado, here is me and Christy. Oh, Christy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lou. It's so good to be back. (laughs) Tell me, what is firing you up at the moment? What is firing me up is diet culture. Pretty much always is firing me up, but I think especially this time of year, it's just reaching a fever pitch as per usual. And uh, my book's about to come out. So I've been thinking a lot about diet culture, talking to a lot of people about the book. And yeah, it just, diet culture takes so many sneaky forms. It's really hard to keep up with them all. But I feel like, you know, this is the time of year when those little subtle shape shifts tend to happen when new diets pop up on the scene, when mm-hmm. old diets try to reinvent themselves and repackage themselves with a pretty bow. And it's all yeah. just the same old shit. You know, it's the same shit on a different sandwich and I'm just over it. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, I love your snort. I, <laughs> I could not agree more. And I feel like I'm giving everyone who's listening to all fight up right now, a bit of a, Christmas present with a bang because like it's you know here in Australia all around the world Christmas time end of the year is it just ramps up another 1500 notches and like you said it's just shit sandwiches wrapped in like pretty Christmas bows and here in Australia it's summertime as well so we get that other kind of uh aspect of diet diet culture bullshit Because it's like going back to the beach time and it's getting hot time and uh, let's all just push these products on everyone. So I'm so glad to have you here and have this conversation to help talk about diet culture and what it is and how to push back. And I'm also just super excited that you've finally written the book. (laughs) Yes, me too. (laughs) It's finally out in the world. I cannot even, like, it's been Uh, so long. Oh, well, yes. It must feel like having like, you know, it's like having a baby. It just takes a long time to get out into the world and with fewer drugs, I imagine. Far fewer drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Almost no drugs were consumed in the making. Well, that's not true because I take medications every day, but (laughs) no recreational drugs were consumed in the making of this book. Let's just say that. (laughs) Fantastic to clear that up. So tell me how, how, how it came about to write the book and how long it took. Yeah, it's been a long time in the making. So I started my career as a journalist 17 years ago and, you know, have always wanted to write a book. It's been actually a dream of mine for probably 35 years because before I could even hold a pen, before I could even write, I was dictating books to my parents and telling people I wanted to be an author when I grew up. So it's like, you know... <laughs> ever since I was like three or four years old. So this is a very long time in the making. The sort of genesis of this idea is a winding path, like most things in my career, uh, Mm -hmm. that about 10 years ago, I decided I wanted to write a book about emotional eating. I had just gone back to school for public health nutrition to get my registered dietitian's license. And I was working also at the city department of health and I wasn't feeling very fulfilled creatively. So I was 
Well, actually, that was sort of more when I started the podcast. Let me backtrack. So before that, I was just coming off of working at Gourmet Magazine, which you know talked a lot about culinary culture and people's relationships with food from this sense of like rootedness and community and how food you know, intersects with culture. And mm. so that got me thinking about relationships with food in this really positive way. But I had had my own really negative relationship with food. I had been a disordered eater since the end of college. And that's what sort of led me into my first beat as a journalist of food and nutrition reporting. Sorry, so, interesting. Mm. Yeah, I was obsessed with it. I was like not eating enough. And so I was constantly thinking about food, researching nutrition, just falling down these rabbit holes with that research. And so kind of wanted to make use of it. And mm. so I went into food and nutrition journalism, you know, as my chosen beat. Mm. And through that got really interested in like Michael Pollan, Marion Nestle, the sort of food politics movement, which I now know is super problematic. And I write about that in the book, but yeah, you know, yeah. I was really obsessed with it, you know? It was, yeah. the, it was the total everything back then, you know? And I think yeah. it, I too was obsessed with Michael Pollan and um, Marion Nestle and all of that kind of, the, you know, the politics of food and stuff. And I thought it was just brilliant at the time. But um, like you said, I think I was also coming at it from a disordered place. Isn't that interesting too, that like it sort of captures the imagination of people who are already disordered about food. And mm -hmm. yeah, I thought it was like the bee's knees. It just seemed so smart and made so much sense. And you know, got me really fired up to like, quote unquote, end the obesity epidemic. Like, oh, you know, save the world and make everyone the same size. Right. Because that's how we save the world. Of course, mm -hmm. not that there's anything else wrong. Like, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it, it was, you know, definitely my, my early career kind of came out of that place. And when I went back to school to become a dietitian, I was still freelance writing and still wanted to keep a toe in the journalism world. And I actually had this, I think I might've said this to people. I was like, I want to be the next Michael Pollan or Marion Nessel. That was my idea of what my career was going to look like after I went to school for, you know, public health and, and nutrition. Mm. So ugh. Mm. <laughs> that I did not end up, you know, doing that kind of work. But, but at the time, so, you know, 20, 2009, 2010, I was in school and decided to start working on a book. And I started researching this book that I, you know, it's really interesting that I had that idea back then, because in some ways it did really inform this book that I ultimately ended up writing without yeah. really realizing, without really realizing how, but I decided to research and start a proposal for a book about cultural history of emotional eating. I wanted mm. to look at like how we got the idea of emotional eating. Where did that come from? What is the history of it? You know, cause I was identifying as an emotional eater at that point still. I still thought of myself as someone who quote unquote ate my feelings, not mm. realizing as I do now that, you know, that was because I wasn't eating enough because I was restricting myself and so ended up swinging back and sort of making up for the, the energy I wasn't getting by eating a lot and feeling sort of out of control with food. But I blamed it on emotions. And mm. you know, there was something in my mind that sort of alerted me that that was kind of weird that like, I was like, where did I get that idea that I'm eating because of emotions? And so yes. I started down this path of researching 
the concept of emotional eating, where it came from and what research had been done about it. And through that research, I discovered the books, the uh, research of Janet Pallavi and Michael Herman on, mm. you know, restrained eating and the effects of that. I discovered lots of other interesting research on dieting and food restraint, um, discovered some really interesting sort of early history of how the, the concept of emotional eating came to be with a psychiatrist named Hilde Brook, who had, you know, sort of an offensive idea about mm. how, how children came to be larger bodied. And I discovered intuitive eating. I discovered the book Intuitive Eating in uh, research. Oh, and, and you and, and you that was so fell in love. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt, you know, I was. I just saw my. I saw my earlier self in it. You know, when I read the book, I think it just made so much sense in terms of, oh, this is how I grew up eating, and like I was fine. I was, you know, at the time, I still was very mired in diet culture, thinking about body size, and so having always been a thin person, I think it was much easier for me to get to that place of like, mm. oh, I ate intuitively and I was fine. You know, that's thin privilege of, of not having to reckon with how weight stigma might get in there and cloud mm. that sort of judgment. But, you know, mm. I was able to sort of say like, oh, this is how I grew up eating and maybe I can get back there. And so that was kind of the start of my recovery. And I was working with a therapist at the time and brought some of the ideas of intuitive eating into my work with her. And that was really, I wouldn't actually, I wouldn't say the start of my recovery because I'd already been sort of inching towards recovery for a long time yeah. at that point. But that was the, the start of my sort of formal recovery, like mm -hmm. my treatment that actually addressed the eating issues specifically. Yeah. And, you know, so that was, that was huge. And through that, I started to heal the way that I ate and didn't quite get to working with clients that way yet at the time, you know, I was, I was working in jobs now at the city department of health and doing nutrition education positions and still teaching people the traditional diet culture stuff of like half your plate and really? you know, That's too much so... foods. And... Oh, what a juxtaposition. It was so cognitively dissonant. It was, yeah. I mean, and, yeah. and even I didn't know, I didn't know how much at the time until I started talking to some of the clients at the program about what they were doing in response to my education. And I started seeing people who were like the quote unquote good students, right? The people who were like, came up and talked to me after class and like really were into it and like making changes. And I started to notice, oh God, these people are doing things that seem kind of extreme. Mm, a little and bit iffy. Yeah. Yeah. And this kind of reminds me of stuff that I used to do when I was really disordered and kind of knew enough at the time to know that my, you know, college and immediate post-college relationship with food was really fucked up. And mm. that if people seem, if people were reminding me of that, that that probably wasn't a good thing. So. <laughs> it's like that little <laughs> thing in your brain went, hmm, yeah. she's telling me she's eating off sauces. That's probably... It's strange. It's not what we're after yeah. here. Yeah, just a little problematic. Yeah, the red flag kind of went up at that point. Yeah. Um, so it kind of, you know, that started me on a path to being open to health at every size or more open to it anyway, starting to specialize in disordered eating and train in disordered eating research and, you know, go to conferences and all the stuff to mm -hmm. really understand it. And that's when the health at every size paradigm really took hold for me was through my work and training in disordered eating. Cause it just became so obvious to me that that was the alternative to this 
diety paradigm. You know, I didn't even have the language of diet culture probably yet then, but mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. what, what really is a diet culture paradigm of, you know, telling people they need to lose weight or need to change how they eat and mm-hmm. that's going to be the key to health and the key to well-being. And so, yeah, so, it, so, you know, that was sort of the genesis of my position, my philosophy, my, you know, the fact that my podcast now addresses this stuff is, is thanks mm-hmm. to that transition that I made into you know, mm-hmm. disordered eating and then health at every size work. And so, so had your, had your podcast, um, sorry to interrupt, but had your podcast yeah. started, when did that start? And so I started it in 2013. So it oh, was right. a little while after I had, you know, I had, I had started writing that book proposal and went back and forth on it for a long time. I was working with an agent and I just couldn't get it right. And I think it was because mm-hmm. I was just not there yet mentally. I wasn't understanding how all the pieces fit together because I saw these things that so challenged the paradigm I was coming out of, the diet culture paradigm. And I was like, I don't know how to make sense mm-hmm. of this. Um, yeah. So oh I, my God. Imagine you had written a book back then. It would have been oh. such a sitting book. I know it would have, it would have really made me cringe now. And I actually saw, I looked at an old email recently because I was kind of looking through to see like if I had talked about this book to anyone and what I had said about it. And I found this email I wrote to a friend being like, it's kind of the Michael Pollan take on food and psychology. And it was like, <laughs> my, sol- my ultimate takeaway was going to be like, you have to eat emotionally the right way by knowing your <laughs> farmer. <laughs> oh my god (laughs) having like a connection it's like an emotional connection to your food that's like the right way to eat emotionally like oh Oh. i'm so glad i didn't write that book oh but you know it's it's so okay for this to be a huge long process as well Mm -hmm. of like unlearning and some concepts like i think for everyone some concepts take hold almost immediately and others really take a long time to like evolve and, and deepen mm-hmm. and even make sense. Totally. Yeah. I think it was, it's interesting how the intuitive eating part made sense to me so quickly because of my lived experience. But mm-hmm. I think because I have always lived in a thin body and have been sort of insulated by thin privilege from having to reconcile, you know, having to reckon with the fact that diets don't work and that, you know, larger body size doesn't predict poor health and all of that stuff. I didn't have to personally kind of reckon with those ideas um, in my own life. And so I think it, it, you know, made it harder for me to embrace and wrap my head around health at every size until later. And that too, I think is, is part of diet culture. You know, the fact that I had grown up in diet culture the way we all have, and that it just flew in the health at every, every size flew in the face of everything I had learned and, come to believe about food and bodies and everything I had learned in graduate school about food and bodies, you know, it was, it it was a huge kind of edifice to have to chip away at for that, for that unlearning to happen. Yeah. And that's why you couldn't write the book until it all made sense. Yeah. And now, you know, 10 years later, 11 years later, since having that first book idea, I really feel like it all finally makes sense. It all oh. feels so right. It's so yeah. kind of fell into place. And I think the podcast was a huge part of that, of like talking out these ideas and- With so many people, yeah. So many brilliant people and reading their books to research for the podcast. And so, you know, just kind of being exposed to so much amazing information and so many people who have such great 
you know, lived experience and academic training and knowledge in this area. So it just, you know, it was, it was basically like a 10 year long reporting yeah. process. So by the time I actually wrote the book, I was like, well, I kind of have all the information here. There was definitely stuff mm -hmm. I still had to research and had to like dig up and stuff and, you know, things that I learned along the way. But I think for the most part, the, the ideas were starting to really fall into place years yes. before that already, you know? Uh, yeah, no, it's so good. And it's so exactly the right thing that it took such a long time and so many voices sort of seeping into your brain to help all of the concepts make sense. Like just, you know, just at a framework theory paradigm level, as well as a practical how-to level, because, you know, and I mentioned, because I think a lot, uh, a lot of people in diet culture write books almost the second they have an idea. And, and that's when like, there are a lot of fence sitting books or there's so many non-diet books that end up with like, oh, intuitive, intuitive eating will stop emotional eating or, you know, just all these nuances that, that you really, until you kind of um, have really sat and thought about it for a long time and listened to a lot of people talk that you, you, sometimes I think people don't understand what they don't yet understand. Mm -hmm. and, and there's publishers out there who want to make money. Diet culture is capitalist enterprise so yeah. um, I'm just glad your book has been added to this landscape and I have to say it's it's fucking awesome Aww. it's so good because it like you said it just like my my question like how long did it take you to write this is because it's just so incredibly detailed there's so much in it there's so much information about the history of diet culture and what it is and about you know, the science of weight and all this really interesting perspective on how diet culture, you know, is just a, a life thief that takes all of our money. <laughs> like you just go down so many awesome rabbit holes and there's, there's so much info in there. So, um, yeah, well done. And, like, bloody hell, I'm so impressed. <laughs> I mean, the presence of greatness. <laughs> Thank you. Oh. Yeah, no, it really was labor of love and just such a long time in the coming. And really, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to write it without all the amazing activists and teachers yes. that went before me, you know. That's that, part of writing, of reading the book too. Like when you're reading the book, it's almost like you can hear that you can, because you're actually quoting so many people in the community and like people with lived experience and people like researchers, academics, like, and everyone who's kind of had a voice is, is, in there it's like it's nice to meet them in there as you're reading too even some aussies <laughs> yes, yes yes some great aussies fantastic so this is a really basic question but i thought it'd be a good one to to start with what is diet culture yeah happy to define it so you know diet culture is really a system of beliefs and values that worships thinness and you know treats it as a mark of health and moral virtue that promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status, whether that's health status, moral status, and, you know, really diet culture conflates the two and demonizes certain foods and ways of eating while elevating others, which is, you know, where we get the idea that there's good foods and bad foods, healthy foods and unhealthy foods, all that bullshit. And ultimately this whole system of beliefs really oppresses people who don't match up with its supposed picture of health and, you know, can create tremendous harm for people's well-being overall, mental, physical, emotional health. So yeah, diet culture really is this 
overarching system of beliefs that I think is endemic to Western culture. It's really inextricable from Western culture at this point in time, I would say, and Mm -hmm. basically shows up everywhere. You know, all of these sneaky, subtle ways and not so subtle ways, Mm -hmm. the way we talk about food and bodies, the way that we, you know, the way that our media makes fun of people in larger bodies, you know, fat Monica on friends, um, you know, children's TV that talks about how such and such character needs to lose weight or, you know, the friends of Disney junior, like fat dog. I forget the character's name, but this adorable fat dog, his friends are like, you need to exercise. Let's get you to move. And, you know, just messages from every corner of the world, from doctors, from, peers, from parents, from, you know, teachers, from the media, from books, from everything, everything, everything that we're surrounded with that talks and thinks about food and bodies is really steeped in this way of thinking and Mm -hmm. the system of oppression. And diet culture also, you know, as I talk about in that chapter on history, which that was kind of the most fun to research Uh, and the most new information to me. I had to, you know, really delve into like historical texts and stuff, which was really fun. I Um, loved your history. This history of diet culture chapter is like, it is a romp through like (laughs) the sexist, racist, like bullshit origins of diet culture. Like it's awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. I really, that's kind of like my main takeaway from all that research was like, oh my God, it was so sexist and so racist and so xenophobic and just like horrible, horrible, horrible system of oppression, you know, born out of these other systems of oppression that already existed and then became its own sort of way of reinforcing all those systems of oppression by policing people based on their body size. It's just Mm -hmm. so insidious and so fucked up. So yeah, that's, you know, that's diet culture for you. Oh yeah. And and so you go through the whole history of how, like even Charles Darwin, flat out fat folk, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and sexist and racist. <laughs> it's really sad when you think about that, you know, like, I mean, he and all those evolutionary biologists really had this fucked up view of bodies that, you know, categorize people on a moral hierarchy. And I didn't have room for this in the book because there's just so much. And it, mm. that chapter was actually like twice the length and I had to cut it down. And my editor was like, what are you doing? Literally. <laughs> so, <laughs> Get out of the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, it's too much. This is going to be a whole book unto itself. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it, it didn't make it into the book, but there was this sort of predecessor to the evolutionary ideas about body size that was called the great chain of being, which is like this fucked up, old idea of how different ethnicities of people rank on the supposed great chain of being of like moving closer to God, basically. What? Are you serious? It's it's ridiculous. It's, yeah, it's beyond the pale. So, you know, people of color and especially people from Africa, right? Sub-Saharan Africa were like the lowest, quote unquote, on the great chain of being. Oh, interesting, considering that, you know, the people who created this great chain of being had a political interest in continuing to enslave people from sub-Saharan Africa needed a justification for that. So like that's where that thinking emerged from was really a justification for slavery and a justification for like white supremacy. And yeah, because I'm just going to guess, yeah, I'm going to guess who's closest to God is like the white man. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and particularly like white Northern European men, you know, it's, 
that's just ridiculous. Wow. (laughs) And then, you know, from there kind of evolutionary biologists built on that idea and they were like, oh, and people of color are less evolved, quote unquote, you know? And Mm -hmm. again, it was like people from sub-Saharan Africa were supposedly the lowest on this chain. And then you have like Native Americans who, oh, surprise, surprise, there was also some political interest in oppressing them from like you know, the U.S. and its whole fucked up history. And then, of course, yeah, white Northern European men at the top of the supposed hierarchy. And they, you know, these biologists who are doing the categorizing and anthropologists, they were looking at, you know, what characteristics do people have that can show how evolved, quote unquote, they are and, you know, where they fall on this the supposed hierarchy and so measuring like the size it was like ridiculous the sort of um (laughs) lengths they went to to do this you know this is where like phrenology comes in like measuring the size of people's heads and the shape and you know but like the size of their ears and their nose and their eyes and their chins and their waist and you know everything like they're just kind of measuring people's bodies and trying to draw some kind of inferences from that and so from that, there was this, this idea emerged that like people of color and women tended to have more fat on their bodies, you know, whether or not that's really true, but that was what the evolutionary biologists kind of came up with. And so, you know, drew from that, that fat was supposedly bad because it was a marker of evolutionary inferiority and it was seen more frequently in women and people of color and less frequently in like men and white men and aristocrats and like um, people why, that they wanted to be like. Why isn't everyone just like the white men? It's, right. It's fascinating. <laughs> Oh, it's ridiculous. It's oh so- God, yeah, that rabbit hole would have lasted forever. But it's oh, so yeah. good to it's so good because we just hear these uh, headlines today, and like you're saying, diet culture is everywhere. It's a soup. It shows up all the time. Like any media article will start with, you know, this assumption, like sentence that bigger people are bad or an epidemic mm-hmm. or a disease, and it's great to trace it all the way back to just how bigoted these ideas were and I love how you said this idea of fatter bodies being inferior predated any kind of health concern so and and the medical establishment really were late joiners to this like system of oppression and prejudice it's so sad to think about that because I think the sort of standard explanation in diet culture is like, well, we believe higher weight is bad because of health, because yeah, like the science yeah. tells us, you know, mm. and that's just not true, you know, and this history really shows that. And, and it was so interesting to sort of articulate that and see that play out because, yeah, it was these ideas about larger bodies being bad and being less evolved and marks of quote-unquote savage savagery savagery yeah Ugh, <laughs> like even that word it's just it's, so I know. Just backwards you know but so it it you know that those ideas were really populating the culture in the mid to late 1800s and it wasn't until like the turn of the century you know the early 1900s that doctors even started weighing people or caring about weight loss really you know I I found evidence that during the sort of early days of diet culture when people were starting to think of larger bodies as bad for these all these bigoted reasons people are going to the doctor and asking for weight loss tips or weight loss diets and the doctors were like 
what are you talking about? Like that's, <laughs> you don't need to lose weight. Gaining weight is, is normal with age. You, you know, you're right where you need to be as an adult. It's actually protective to gain weight. People tend to do better if they are larger bodied. And, you know, doctors also thought kind of like privately, like this is really taking us away from the serious medical concerns we need to be addressing. Like this mm-hmm. is just mere vanity. People are coming in yeah. you know, with these sort of vain concerns that doctors don't need to be wasting our time addressing. And it wasn't until these fat phobic ideas were really so ingrained that people were just hounding their doctors constantly and insurance companies started hounding doctors as well of like, you know, look at, look at what our, you know, tiny data sets tell us about, about yeah. white, rich white men and how the larger <laughs> ones don't live as long. And so, you know, we're having to spend more money. So you better tell them to lose weight. You know, that's basically what it was. And so that sort of twin pressure of the public and insurance industries kind of resulted in doctors caving and like giving the people what they want, you know? And so, yeah, it followed, yeah, followed the Zeke East. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. I was surprised to hear that even the suffragettes were sizest. Yeah. So, I mean, that was such a fascinating finding too, because you know, the suffragettes, the, you know, suffragists who are fighting for women's suffrage around, you know, starting in the late 1800s, but, you know, kind of ramping up into, into the early 20th century were getting a lot of pushback as one can imagine from something mm-hmm. that is so, you know, was so revolutionary at the time. They had a lot of critics and a lot of people pushing back against them. And one of the ways in which the anti-suffragists would criticize them would be to paint them as like larger bodied, masculine, you know, quote unquote, ugly by the standards of the day. And, you know, use that as a way to denigrate, both denigrate the existing suffragists and also like dissuade more women from joining them because it's like, oh, you don't want to be like that. Look at these monsters. Look at these people. You don't want to, you're, you're better than that. Right. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the rhetoric of the anti-suffragists. And the suffragists, instead of, you know, fighting back against the idea that, you know, we should judge people by their appearance and that there was anything wrong with larger bodies or masculinity and in women or, you know, whatever, instead of, instead of fighting on those grounds, they chose to make the argument that, no, we're actually thin and beautiful and look at, you know, our ads, our propaganda is going to show suffragists being these beautiful, delicate flowers that look very much like the, you know, Victorian woman or Gibson girl, you know, the popular images of the day, you know, surrounded by these evil men. And and there are often characters in the ads of the time that would be sort of, you know, quote unquote, fat cats, like big business, greedy corporate Mm -hmm. dudes who are in larger bodies kind of leering at these suffragists, you know, thin, you know, white. And of course they were white too, right? And And they were wearing white too. Like thin thin white women wearing white being being beautiful and desirable. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And, And sort of shunning the, you know, there's there's also this is something that I kind of found in my research and didn't even have time to really delve into in the book. But, you know, there, there were black women who wanted to join the suffrage and who, who were, who were part of the suffrage movement who got sort of excluded by mainstream white suffragism because the, the mainstream movement felt that, you know, including black women and other women of color would be undermining their argument for oh, God. equality. That's so blatant. That is awful. It's awful. 
Yeah. So like, you know, really just sort of they leaned into the like, okay, you think white is better. You think thin is better and beautiful, you know, by our you know, culture standards of the day is better. Yeah. We'll show you that we are all of those things and that we deserve equal rights, you know, in part because we match up with this standard of beauty. Like we're not, we're nothing to be afraid of. We're not these monsters. We're not different. We're exactly what you want women to be. We just deserve the vote. So it was really problematic, you know, and, and the fact that obviously I, I appreciate the fact that women, in the U.S. and around the world, ultimately, well, not around, not yet around the world, but in the Western world anyway, ultimately got the vote. Mm-hmm. But it's really, it was really on the backs of people of color and larger bodied people and people who didn't fit the gender binary. And so it's kind of fucked up. It's very fucked up. I mean, even here in Australia, white women got the vote around the time of the century. I can't remember when, but Aboriginal women didn't get the vote till the 1970s. In fact, Aboriginal people didn't get them. It's just really, yeah, really terrible when you look at the history of social movements and how really small steps have to be made sometimes or small steps are made and a lot of people just get ignored and, you know, it's not until much later that those changes happen. Yeah, it's actually kind of similar in the U.S. too in terms of true voting rights, even though black men technically got the vote before women in practice, black people were barred from voting for so long that it wasn't until like the 1960s that the Voting Rights Act, I don't remember the exact date either, but it, you know, sometime in the 60s, I believe, went into effect. And so, you know, much later than like 1920 when women's suffrage mm-hmm. did. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really interesting to think about that and, you know, to think about situating size acceptance in that, in, in sort of larger social movements too, and thinking about the fact that like, we are where we are right now with the size acceptance movement, where I think it is becoming more mainstream around the world. I have this book coming out with a major publisher. There've been other books with major publishers that talked about this stuff. Like it's, yes. it's, you know, on the news yeah. and in, in, in the zeitgeist. Right. But mm-hmm. I think it's still probably going to be a long time before we have real equality. And I mean, God knows we're still fighting for equal voting rights in this country right now in the U.S. Like it's still, there's still racist, you know, oppression of people and and disenfranchisement of people of color. So it's Mm -hmm. not like it's all done, but, you know, size acceptance, I think is going to have a similar trajectory of, of it's been going for a long time already. The movement dates back to the late 1960s, but like, we're just getting started you know. Yeah. But do you feel like it's firing up a little more than it ever has? I do. I mean, I really do. I think, you know, in terms of, and and not that like every movement should be judged by this, but I think that it is, there's a lot more mainstream attention being paid to it. There's a lot more, you know, people like me and, and diet, you know, other dietitians and therapists and professional, like health professionals who have some measure of privilege because of our education and the positions that we're in are taking this seriously and are spreading the health at every size message and anti-diet message, you know, far and wide. Whereas like 10, 10 years ago, that wasn't happening 20 years ago, 30 years ago, that certainly wasn't happening. You know, back in the early days of the size acceptance movement, it was activists and that's awesome. Like that's who needs, you know, we need activists to start movements and to sustain movements and activists are still very much, I mean, I consider myself an activist too, but you know, people mm-hmm. who are, who really have the lived experience. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The ones that, you know, started the fat acceptance movement. 
And later on, you know, in the seventies, like some dietitians and therapists and other health professionals started to come on board because they were understanding and sympathetic to the ideas that the activists were raising. And that was kind of the genesis or the, you know, groundwork for the health at every size movement, which then recruited more people who have that educational privilege and, you know, can kind of make changes in positions of authority and, you know, institutions and things like that. And so, yeah, I think now we're at this place where like a lot of people in a lot of different walks of life are talking about size acceptance and Mm -hmm. it's become a lot more, a lot more mainstream, still not at all fully mainstream, but people are talking about it, I think Mm -hmm. in, in, you know, situations where like, I think it's honestly, as I say in the book, it's like the cool people are talking about it now, you know, the people who are kind of the, the cultural vanguard. And that's really interesting because that is, that I think is what it takes to take something fully mainstream. And there are obviously challenges that come with something going fully mainstream, but I think it's also when it's something that helps more people gain greater rights and respect it's it's yeah. important for it to go mainstream, you know. Yeah, the, we can we can more... use the cool people to open the door, and yeah. then allow everybody to come through, and that's exactly. you know the difference. Like it's not like the suffragettes who just let the good looking people through. It's like <laughs> <laughs> let's let everybody through, and like people like you know Jamila is oh, I always forget her last uh, name. Jamil, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, people who are really raising awareness, like, because she's definitely a cool person, um, Mm -hmm. but she's also fairly fired up about size acceptance, which is really nice. And, yeah, it's definitely, definitely happening. And I think it's really interesting because, and oh, how good is it that Victoria's Secret has been cancelled? No more fashion (laughs) show. Hello. I know that's really something, right? Yeah. And watching Lizzo at the video awards, like just watching more diversity. And even here in Australia, there's, there's some like mind blowing things happening, like mannequins that are more than just size eight are appearing in stores. And when we shop online, there are people who have bodies that are not just size four and six on catalogs yeah yeah like so it feels like and even you know larger people on the cover of Vogue like it feels like in like fashion and you know the traditional I guess thin ideal industry it feels like there's more diversity that's uh, that's just appearing and not being commented on but then it sort of feels like in the health space it's actually getting worse like the, <laughs> so where are we in a world when like Victoria's Secret is actually cooler than your local doctor? Oh, seriously. That's such a good point. It is like, I think the diet industry is sort of clinging on for dear life and trying to do its damnedest to, you know, keep people focused on the supposed health risks of being in a larger body. And I think that industry is getting, is, is so scared by body acceptance and, you know, the size acceptance movement because more and more people are walking away from weight loss and the diet industry is built on selling weight loss. So it's trying, you know, every last way that it knows how to get people to stay or get people to continue giving it their money. Yeah. By now, like you talk about in the book, it's now the the wellness diet. Like it's, it's no longer like just a weight loss. In fact, weight loss focus is frowned on, but this idea of improving health or 
getting rid of those vague health-related uh, modern scourges like brain fog and bloating and stuff like that. <laughs> like, and you can only do that by my cleanse. Right. Yes, right. it's a sign yeah. of desperation for sure. It is. And it's so insidious, that stuff too, because like, you know, those, those vague symptoms like bloating, brain fog, fatigue, missing periods, or, you know, hormonal difficulties or what have you, you know, all of that stuff can be explained by disordered eating. All of that stuff can be the result of dieting. And I think is for a lot of people who experience it. And so for the diet industry, you know, which is now going by the name of the wellness industry to say, oh, cut out these foods in order to manage this. Oh, it's, you know, the problem is what you're eating is so insidious and so shady because they're the ones that created this problem in the first place. You know, the, the diet industry, diet culture is what got us into this mess of disordered eating in the first place. And now it's telling us that the solution is found through cutting out more foods. Like, ah, yeah. You know, talk about doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result, right? Yeah, like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to listen to you anymore. I think I'm going to do something completely different, like <laughs> radical, like health at every size. And you do in your book, you go, I love how you've done the uh, description of, you know, doing it differently and like time for a change, time for something completely different. Because I think one of the misconceptions about health at every size is it's a do nothing treatment you know and it's just not because there's so much cool stuff that we can do to look after ourselves I like how you say it's self-care not self-control yeah but getting that message across out into the world that that there is a lot you can do to support you know health that's absolutely bugger all to do with weight change or even you know, lifestyle change. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a whole it doesn't world. Have to cut out, it doesn't have to do with cutting out a million foods or, you know, making your, your diet so austere that you don't have any fun. Like it's yeah, not like, about dieting. Yeah. It's not about like eating protein balls for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you talk a little bit about like the emotional eating stuff? Cause I thought that in your book was really, unique and awesome to, to sort of dive into. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, so the, you know, the emotional eating stuff, I think came out of some of that earlier research I did for that book that I didn't end up writing and mm. subsequent research on emotional eating. Cause it's kind of always been a pet issue of mine of, you know, having thought I was an emotional eater for so long, just curious about what the research actually says about it, what people's lived experience actually is of it and how recovery from disordered eating can change people's experiences of so-called emotional eating. And really what I've found is that emotional eating is incredibly complex, but that you know people who self-identify as emotional eaters, A, don't typically actually eat more in response to emotional situations in experimental settings. So the research kind of you know, researchers believe that, and this is something that I've seen in my practice too, that people who self-identify as emotional eaters tend to just be people who are more concerned about their health, who are more mm-hmm. likely to follow rules about so-called healthy eating and to be hard on themselves when they don't measure up with their supposed uh, ideals of health rather than people who actually quote unquote eat their feelings and, you know, eat in response to difficult emotions. So that's one mm-hmm. thing. The other thing is that 
it's, you know, much more likely for people to eat in a way that feels emotional, that feels out of control, that feels like it maybe is responding to an emotional trigger when they're not eating enough. And yes. people who are deprived of food tend to be more, much more likely to gravitate towards food in a way that feels like emotional eating and that feels, you know, feels like they're losing control. I don't like to say quote unquote overeating because I think that's kind of giving a value judgment to the way that people eat. And, you know, there really is no quote unquote right amount to eat, but I think people feel, you know, feel like they lack control and feel like they're swinging over to the side of eating a lot of food in a way that's uncomfortable, especially because of diet culture's beliefs about what it quote unquote means to eat a lot of food. And so, you know, really when people work to heal their relationships with food and stop dieting at all the subtle sneaky forms, all the, the subtle ways that they might be still holding on to the diet mentality, they, and, and, you know, they do that for a while and practice that long-term and also heal, of course, the, the underlying weight stigma that might be driving all of that. Mm. Um, people tend to stop feeling like they're eating emotionally. You know, that is so interesting. Mm. Yeah. I, I quote someone in the book who took my online course in intuitive eating, who said, you know, I, I have a little section in my course where people can put in aha moments for the week, you know, like a form they can submit saying kind of what's going on for them. And this person shared like, I'm not an emotional eater. How's that for an aha moment? I thought all these years I thought I was, you know, quote unquote, eating my feelings or quote unquote, sick in the head, as my mama would say, this person said, mm-hmm. um, but actually, you know, I was just hungry mm-hmm. and I was all these, all this time of running around, you know, eating too little food and then trying to do all these errands and get kids to school and play tennis and all the rest, you know, all of that on, on too little food. No wonder I was like a fiend by three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, it wasn't <laughs> emotional. It was just, I was freaking starving. Oh my God. But that is, yeah, it just you, it just uncovers the value judgment of, you know, eating. Like if we have a belief that we shouldn't be eating very much at all, then the so-called loss of control is viewed as an emotional problem that might be healed by therapy, right? But um, right. Right. And, and sadly, <laughs> so many therapists and diet culture kind of co-sign that because they, they don't do. know better, you know? Yeah. And I think that's where one issue where a therapist sometimes would benefit from some knowledge, you know, from a dietitian or collaborating with a dietitian because, you know, I I get that therapists don't really learn about energy balance and, Mm. you know, nutritional needs in school and stuff. So, you know, when they hear someone's self-report of emotional eating, they might take that at face value, not digging deeper to see like, what are are you you actually eating? What are you, Mm. yeah. And what are you like expecting yourself to be eating? And and Mm. is that, you know, realistic? Mm. Are you following some wackadoo diet, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Or just some, not, not even consciously following a diet, but just feeling like you really shouldn't eat very much. So without questioning that, but that's one of my favorite parts in therapy is the bit where I have that question of, is this person eating enough? And then immediately know that I can send that person to a dietitian because it is not my <laughs> expertise whatsoever. I know. Um, yeah. So, I think it's so great when therapists are really educated on that stuff. And I, th- you know, like those of us in the haze and eating disorder space certainly are, but I wish therapists outside of this space would also learn about that you know yeah but you know what therapists and psychologists get all of their degrees and study and experience in the soup of diet culture and it's not examined Mm -hmm. and so if a therapist has this unquestioned solid belief that she shouldn't be eating very much either 
then you know deceiving someone coming as a as a client and saying i'm eating too much after 3 p.m there's not going to be that red alert that goes off i i went to a therapist once who said she specialized in eating disorders and this was like after my disordered you know the after i was done disordered eating basically but starting to work in the eating disorders field and i just wanted to like check in with someone who specialized to be like am i in a place where i can sort of ethically do this and my therapist that i had worked with for many years was moving and so i was like okay it's a good time to transition so i started trying to work with this person who said she specialized in eating disorders and you know she was getting my history and sort of hearing about my eating disorder past and and I had never been diagnosed. So I said, you know, I had this sort of winding path to discovering that my eating was problematic, but, you know, here's kind of some of the stuff I was doing back in the day and mm-hmm. you know, some of the stuff that I was perceiving as disordered, which very much is, you know, not eating enough food. And I, I told her a calorie number that I was like, I tried to stick to X number of calories and I know that wasn't enough for my body, but at the time I thought it was okay. And she was like, oh, that's, that should be fine. Like that should be enough. That's not, that's actually not disordered. And I was like, uh, okay, I'm not working with you. (laughs) Clearly have a very fucked up idea of what, you know, disordered eating actually looks like, you know, based on kind of thinking that that number of calories was fine because that's what you see in like magazines and, you know. Yeah, that's a diet. Yeah. The diet. That's not an eating disorder. It's just a diet, you know, it's like, oh. oh, this is from an eating disorder specialist. Yeah, someone who built herself that way anyway. Oh my I would God. Not say she was very well versed in it, given that. But yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know what? That's why I, I firmly agree that eating disorder therapists, the Hayes therapists, or, you know, Hayes eating disorder specialists are your best bet, are your safest mm-hmm. bet. Because just by virtue of like the process that you go through when you open yourself up to health at every size, learning, it, it, it is understanding this stuff and if you don't understand this stuff then you'll inadvertently do harm and mm-hmm. um, yeah so protect yourself by seeing a haze therapist <laughs> the other bit that i loved when you started your section on um you know what haze is all about is it, there's a whole chapter on getting angry and why it's okay Mm-hmm. I love that. I know. It's like perfect fit with all fired up, right? Like yeah. in your piece. So <laughs> yes, yes. Because it, it's the waking up section. It's, and you know, and you did that beautifully in your book by like revealing diet culture for the like massive fuck up that it is. But to actually wake up to that and say, this is actually impacted on my life. And I have been sold endless amounts of bullshit and I've spent so much money and so much of my life has been taken by this and and I've been angry at myself the whole time and now I'm going to give myself permission to open up and get really angry at the culture and at the messaging and at the weight loss companies and even at my healthcare providers for like selling me this constant message like because women, we don't get validated, not just women, but everybody, but particularly women, we don't get validated in feeling angry about stuff. So it was really good to go through that and have so much information on why it's just not only okay, but like really necessary in order to protect yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I have found that to be true in my own life and in my clients, you know, work with clients is that getting angry is such an important and valuable part of the process. And like, 
almost inevitable, you know, I mean, yes. I some people who, who sort of show anger differently or aren't as comfortable with anger and it might not be as big and external as other people's anger. But I think, mm. you know, feeling that anger and just, and turning it from, because I think diet culture really does force us to get angry at ourselves and turn, mm. you know, those sharp points of our anger inward. And if we can turn, you know, flip them back out to where they belong at the culture. I think that's a huge shift in and of itself because, you know, it gets that, those stabby pokey points out of us and helps us heal. And, you know, I think also helps us make change in the world and be a force for good because we're now looking and aiming our anger at the right thing, at the right target, mm -hmm. the true target that is diet culture. Absolutely. I mean, I obviously had no trouble accessing my anger and, and expressing it to the world. <laughs> and I get that not everyone's going to feel it or express it in the same way, but such a good point. The anger can change the world. It, it really is that people getting angry and pushing back that can change stuff. And I'm noticing in the, I guess, quote unquote, obesity research world, they sort of befuddled uh, at anger and, and and really trying to make efforts to condescend it or to mm -hmm. dismiss it. So in New York recently, there was like a, an obesity conference in which one of the titles of the presentations was on how how they can keep doing what they're doing right now when everyone's so angry at them. So I think the title of the presentation was like, pediatric weight loss interventions in an era of outrage and oh. yeah they had a whole panel there that was talking about like how how confusing it was that people are just so angry and you know after reading your book they're using the um the suffragette sort of criticism they're using that these 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 fat angry people who are just being a bit hysterical around something that you know we're doing such a great thing here so it's it's the same attempt to silence by by putting people in an out group, and that's why I think it's important that we stay angry and we keep pushing because this this can't get silenced. It's really true that like that effort to paint us as angry and paint, you know it's supposedly unfeminine to be angry mm -hmm. too, right? It's the other thing. It's sort of drawing on like social norms to police and silence us by saying like, you don't want to be like this. You don't want to be this angry, outraged person. And we know, you know, certainly in the US and I think around the world too, there's a lot of examples of political outrage that are pretty unsavory. <laughs> like our, our orange, orange dictator that we have in the US. <laughs> one example, right? So, you know, it's, uh, I think, I think sort of channel it you know painting anger as like oh we don't want to be like that like yeah. this is an era of outrage and like we're better than this we we speak in rational terms and yes. anger is the province of these emotional hysterical women or these people who just don't understand these like anti-intellectuals but we're over here with our rationality and our science and our medicine you yeah. know doing the right thing it's like this effort to sort of dismiss mm. any critique and I think too, when people do that, when they dismiss anger and tone police like that, mm. they're missing a very important piece of the puzzle, which is like, why are people so angry? Mm -hmm. Nobody's angry for no reason. Nobody's angry in a vacuum. You mm. know, if, if anger is there, it's an important signal that something is going on, that something is unjust, that someone is feeling 
taken advantage of or, you know, unseen or disrespected. And that's important information, you know, and, mm -hmm. and for them to just dismiss that and paint this whole group of people as just, you know, we need to overcome their outrage and keep doing what we're doing is just mm -hmm. completely missing the point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that'll be really interesting to see what happens, won't it? Because we're not going away <laughs> and you're getting your book out there. Yeah. I'm, I'm gearing up for some major backlash, honestly. I'm like, uh, you know, I, I, I am going to be, I am here at the other end of the internet. If you ever need a little bit of vent, because okay. if, if, you know what, if, if you get backlash, that's, that's part of it. But that was one of my questions to you too. Like, what's your big, what's your practice for self-care? Like, how do you protect yourself when yeah. things get rough? That's a great question. I mean, I have a couple of things that I sort of cycle through and rely on, which, you know, one being like trying not to look at it, trying not to read the comments. You know, everybody says, don't read the mm. comments, right? All, all journalists kind of advise each other, don't read the comments. And it can be hard because you get curious, but mm. I think I was pretty good at, at actually just being like, I have no desire for these comments <laughs> when I was, uh, had my couple New York times op-eds come out recently. Mm. And I actually had an editor who, you know, wanted me to respond to some of the comments because some of them were important and had, you know, valuable questions attached. So I actually had her like collect a bunch of them, the ones that she thought was the be were the best and then bring them to me. So it kind of shielded me from the mm. abusive ones, you know, mm. and also the times actually does a pretty decent job of weeding out the really terrible ones. So, yeah. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, having someone else kind of look at my comments or reviews for me has been really helpful. I've had my husband help me do that as well. Sometimes, you know, just venting to him or to friends and people in the community about this stuff, I think is hugely helpful too. you know, not posting publicly. Cause I feel like if I were to post publicly, then I would be inviting some of the same backlash on whatever that mm -hmm. post would be. So I'm kind of like choosy about where I reach out for help and, and support, but I have, you know, people in my corner that I really feel supported by. So that is mm -hmm. huge for me. Yoga, unplugging, you know, like mm -hmm. meditation, being in my body, being in nature, all yeah. those things where, you know, cause I think sometimes like I, the internet is real. It's, I don't, I try not to say it's not real life, you know, cause it is mm -hmm. a lot of what happens there has very real impacts in the world. And the feelings and emotions that come up based on the attacks that can happen there or the, the friendships and the community that can happen there are very real. But I think that there's something particularly healing and restoring and just necessary about being in like meat space, you know, in physical space mm -hmm. with people and with nature and with animals and just, you know, kind of puttering around the house or whatever it may be that stepping away from my computer and stepping away from my phone and like mm. disconnecting from technology and really being in the physical world, I think is very helpful. Cause I think, yeah. you know, you just, it forces you to put one foot in front of the other and to just do the next thing. And that practice helps get you out of those mental loops that can be so anxiety producing. Mm. Yeah. That's a great reminder. I think just to unplug and ground and just be in your life, in your kitchen or with your husband or just, you know, whatever is happening in the big, in the big bad world of activism that, that you can just sort of practice simply being and 
I'm glad that you've got those practices solidly and I'm glad you've got people filtering for you. And, of course, you have this community and we are grateful to you for, like, a strong voice and such a solid voice. And, like, that, those New York op-ed pieces were great. I'll put them in the show notes so people can read them. But basically Christy was talking about the work app um, the, the turbo thing for kids and how shit it is and and it was just really good to have it featured I mean this is like a reflection of the Zeitgeist right now and the, and how strong and loud this voice is now because to get it in the New York Times like that's kind of a big deal it's, it's, and you know actually the the backstory to how it even got there was that the editor of the one of the editors of the opinion section listens to my podcast and Excellent. she reached out to me and asked me to to write this piece which I think is also kind mm-hmm. of a sign of the times that, you know, people yeah. in positions like that are, are seeking out anti-diet information. And, you know, mm-hmm. I was, I was floored when she, when she she's a fan, of course, she's a fan because yeah. your podcast is awesome and you have so many amazing guests and it's really, really good. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. So do you, can you tell me when it's coming out? Um, the book is called Anti-Diet and mm-hmm. reclaim your time, money, well-being and happiness through intuitive eating. And I think it's, is it out in the States around Christmas? It is, yeah. It's out on Christmas Eve, uh, yeah. December 24th in the States. And then it's actually out December 26th in the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. So okay. very shortly thereafter. All right. Now, this is a gripping holiday read, everybody. So thank you. And I'll put um, a link of where you can get it because it's going to be everywhere, right? It's going to be everywhere, yeah. yeah. All the stores. So, may may so you good. outsell every shitty New Year's diet book on the planet. Thank you so much. <laughs> I hope so. I'm not going to wood for that. <laughs> oh, so lovely to talk to you. And um, thank you for taking the time to not only write the book, but just to be awesome. And oh, I forgot to mention everybody, um, Christy and I are going to be part of a really cool panel at the International Eating Disorders Conference in Sydney in June. So we get to hang out and spend some time together. I'm so excited for that. And and more evidence, right? Because I think at least 14 of the submissions, 14 of the presentations and workshops at this International Congress on Eating Disorders are non-diet and haze and social justice, right? So it's amazing. Yeah. Rocking the world. Rocking the world and just, yeah, making change from within. It's really cool. Yeah. I'm so excited. I can't Thank wait you to so see much, you. Lou. It's, it's so good to talk with you. It's so good. Take care. You too. Oh, what an awesome interview and what a way to finish the year. Thank you so much, Christy, for coming on. And I really hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. She's such an awesome human as well as just a fantastic advocate for everything that happens in the anti-diet space and it is truly exciting isn't it to see just how big the pushback is getting so bring on 2020 and bring on the downfall of diet culture what do you say (laughs) so if you guys want to find out more about christy and her book pretty sure as we said it's coming out on christmas eve in the states and europe and on boxing day in oz And by the time it comes out, I'm sure it's going to be everywhere and you guys know how to find a book. But just in case, if you go to christyharrison.com forward slash book, you should be able to find a way of getting it delivered to your hot little hands. And if you want to follow Christy and find out more about what she does, you can find her on Instagram 
at Christy Harrison. So that's with a T-Y and a double R and one S. And also, instead of the I in Christy, it's a number one, just to get tricky. And on Twitter as well, she's at Christy Harrison. And again, the I in Christy is a one. And she's on Facebook as well. And you can find her just by looking at her name, Christy Harrison. And of course, if you Google search the Food Psych podcast, you will find a treasure trove of amazing interviews with humans from all over the world. Uh, You know, just like there's hundreds of interviews, including one with me. (laughs) So absolutely go and stalk Christy like there's no tomorrow and get this book, Anti-Diet. It's a complete ripper of a read. And perhaps you can be reading it as you uh, wait for the Untrapped Intensive to start in mid-gen. Come and join us. (laughs) Don't forget if you are interested in signing up for Untrapped and the Intensive and joining the community and getting on board for this really cool move through the coursework to enter the code 2020 sale at the checkout. So just go to untrapped.com.au, go to the checkout. When you're checking out, enter the code 2020 sale and this really discounted price of 400 Aussie dollars will pop up. You'll be in. We will be raring to go. Engines are roaring. It's going to be awesome. Also, let's not forget crappies. If you're fired up about anything you just heard me and Christy uh, ranting about, or if you've heard something that's really, really pissing you off and you think, hey, I need to get this off my chest, don't forget, send it in for the crappy awards. You never know, you could be wearing the glorious crown. Uh, So send a three-minute or so rant, just verbal, in maybe an MP3, MP4 file, and email it to me, louise at untrapped.com.au. I want to hear your rage. Uh, I want to kind of feel it like in my soul. So give me everything and don't be afraid to swear because you know we're all friends here. Okay, my friends, I just want to say just... I feel so lucky to be able to be doing this podcast and it just brings me so much joy and pleasure to hear from you. So if you've got any ideas for 2020 topics that you'd love me to cover, I've got some, I've got some mega stuff in the works for you, including a wonderful follow-up, probably going to be a series of episodes on the obesity collective stuff because that's gotten really fascinating. And I've got all sorts of really cool subjects that we're going to dive into in 2020 but I'm always open to your ideas. So email me louise at untrapped.com.au if there's something you really want the podcast to go into and I'm happy to do so. And if you're loving the podcast, please feel generous enough to go and give us a really nice five-star rating and review wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. And don't forget to, to subscribe so you don't forget to, or you don't miss out on episodes when they do pop out. But look, I'm going to be off now. I'm going to put my feet up and have a lovely anti-diet cocktail. And I hope that you guys look after yourselves, look after each other in this diet culture soup that's pumping us full of bullshit all of the time. Push back against all of this stuff. And I cannot wait to see you uh, all again in 2020. But until then, trust no one, think critically, push back against diet culture, untrap from the crap. (laughs) 